Hello and welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scotty Milder. This is our very first episode of 2024. And I am here this week with author Derek Cavignano. So Derek is an award-winning author who writes character-driven horror and crime thrillers. A native of Boston, Derek now lives in Florida and is an active member of the Horror Writers Association and the Southwest Chapter of the HWA. Awards for his novels include the National Indie Excellence Awards, the Best Book Awards, the American Fiction Awards, and the Silver Falchion Award. Publishers Weekly says that he's clever, but his wife begs to differ. Now you can probably hear in my voice that I have been sick over the holidays. I'm uh, almost over it, but I'm still obviously kind of a little hoarse, but we're going to go ahead and muddle through. Before I get started, I do want to talk about another show. This is from a previous guest of the podcast, Daniel Brom. The show is on YouTube. It's called Nighttime Logic. It's hosted by Daniel. He's, of course, the author of The Night Marchers and Other Strange Tales and The Serpent Shadow. You'll remember I talked to Daniel back over the summer. The series focuses on the strange, the weird, and the wonderful side of dark fiction through readings and discussions with diverse authors from around the world. You can tune in on Daniel's YouTube channel, which is his name, Daniel Brom. The next episode will be on January 16th, and his guest is going to be the great Brian Evanson. I'll go ahead and post a link to Daniel's YouTube channel in this episode's show notes. And as always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please go to whatever streaming platform you're using. Give me a five-star review. Tell your friends. Post on social media. Spread the word. And here we go with Derek Cavignano. So we met just a couple months ago, two, three months ago at uh, Spooky Empire in Orlando. That was my first time at that convention. Uh, Was that your first time on a panel there or had you done that one before? It was my first time there. I think some of the, you know, I was there with the Southwest uh, Florida Horror Writers Association chapter. I think um, a couple of those guys had been there before. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was my first time. Yeah, that was a fun, that was a fun event. And, uh, we, we were on a panel together. We were on the psychological horror panel and I had heard your name before, but I had, wasn't actually that familiar with you. I think I'd read a couple of short stories, um, but I wasn't that familiar with your work. So this was kind of a good opportunity to kind of dive in, but before we get there, I don't want to jump the gun. I just kind of, I always like to just kind of start with, uh, hearing kind of how, where people come from and, uh, uh, how they got into writing and specifically specifically how they found their way to horror. So I'm just going to give us the background there. Yeah. So I guess how I got started on this whole thing, I guess I was always a reluctant reader until I was Mm -hmm. about 15. My sister kept, you know, trying to get me to uh, read Stephen King. She was an avid reader. And Mm -hmm. I think what did it for me was really like the talisman, uh, Mm. the book with Peter Straub, that was kind of like, kind of a horror fantasy which from that point on I was kind of hooked and I ended up writing actually my first novel at 15 which was kind of like mm-hmm. a ripoff of the <laughs> you know just kind of kicking around bored had a lot of time on my hands and actually just messing around with the you know with the new computer and just uh opened a you know word document and just typed in a, a sentence just randomly and then I'm mm-hmm. like oh I wonder like why would that have happened? And then mm-hmm. just one thing after another. And then I just realized, you know what? I, I like this. I, I can do it. Mm-hmm. I Obviously, the first draft or the first novel was super rough, but um, it just it kind of uh, wet my appetite for, 
you know, writing and then kind of encouragement through school and then, mm-hmm. you know, just continuing to read things like Stephen King and Peter Straub, et cetera. And then, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to do. Yeah. That's funny. I mean, my guess is I think we're probably sort of the same generation, roughly kind of the same age. So I think like a lot of us, uh, I think Stephen King was our way in to the genre, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but I have to admit, The Talisman is one of the very few Stephen King books I haven't read. Um, although I have read Black House. I've read the sequel, okay. <laughs> weirdly. Yeah. And I did love Black House. I've always meant to get back to The Talisman. I think when I when I tried to read it, probably middle school, I think Peter Straub's story, I had to get a little, or his style, I had to get a little bit older before I could really appreciate his style. Yeah. You know, he's just, just that much more literary and kind of, um, I think it was, uh, it kind of threw me for a loop. What was it about the talisman specifically that grabbed you? I think it was just really the world building and then mm-hmm. just like the sense, and I, you know, it, it it's definitely like a, a book that speaks to like young boys, right? Because you got, mm-hmm. I think the character was maybe Jack Sawyer or something like right. that, who's, you know, he's like a, you know, I think he was 13 in, in the book and he's mm-hmm. just like, you know, his mother's dying. He's sort of just moved to his own place and he's just trying to like find his way on his own and, you know, ends up stumbling onto like a parallel universe, right? Where, you know, there's something special about him and like, you know, this power that he has and like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that really speaks to you as a, as as a young person and just, you know, it kind of fills you with wonder and excitement. And like, for me, it was just kind of being drawn into that, that kind of magic, I think. Mm-hmm. And so Stephen King, who who else? You said Stephen King, Peter Straub. Who else? Uh, were there any other writers that after you kind of found your way into the genre that that kind of opened your eyes? Yeah, I kind of went to to John Saul and Clive Barker, mm-hmm. and then you know from there it was just more Stephen King, and then reading some you know, Michael Crichton as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of got into a little bit of the the sci-fi stuff and, um, you know, with him and Robin Cook and then started reading fantasy like the Terry Goodkind and, oh, right. um, you know, what was the the Shannara series, um, Terry Brooks. Oh, right, right, right. And, um, so I, I did that whole kind of cycle and then I started to get into crime thrillers and, mm-hmm. you know, Dennis Lehane and James Patterson and um, that sort of thing. You know, so for me, I've always lived in kind of the thriller space, which right. um, now I, I guess my books tend to alternate between pure horror and like a horror thriller, you know, yeah. psychological thriller. So, yeah. And I want to get to, I mean, we, we're going to talk about The Art of Dying, um, your novel, The Art of Dying. And I, I don't want to jump the gun, but I do want to say I, I felt like I could see the Dennis Lehane influence on that definitely and i want to talk about uh so you grew up in boston correct um you're living in florida now but uh i uh i'm fascinated by i want to talk about your your upbringing in boston because uh i'm fascinated by boston as people who've listened to this podcast know i have my own history with boston i went to graduate school there i lived there for two years so i have a very uh very much a soft spot in my heart for boston um but i think i had i had very much that like hipster college experience of boston (laughs) you know (laughs) i definitely uh moved there after from what i understand the city had kind of cleaned up its act i think yeah 
the combat zone, I think, was down to like one street. I think the Glass Slipper was like the only strip club left in the city. Um, I know the the dog track up in Revere still had kind of its its sort of uh, gangster reputation, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, there's still plenty of there places. Was, yeah, it seemed like there were vestiges of this kind of yep. storied sort of, I don't know what you would say, the departed kind of Boston. <laughs> yeah. Sure. But I didn't see that much of it. But when I was there, I discovered the story of Whitey Bulger when I was living. I lived there 2004 to 2006, so he was still on the lam. Okay. And I think it was around the time that the book Black Mass came out, and I found it at the the BU bookstore, read it, just became obsessed with the story, would wander around South Boston trying to find all the haunts, you know. And so I just was just fascinated by that story. And reading The Art of Dying, I kind of got a sense that you had some of those same fascinations. So just what what part of the city did you grow up in? And what kind of what was your sort of relationship with the city and growing up in that kind of history of the city? Yeah, so I like I grew up, so I was... I was born in 74. So I think mm-hmm. we are around, I think. Yeah, you're a couple years older than me, but we're pretty yeah. close. Um, so like I grew up, I grew up in the suburbs. I was 10 miles outside of the city on the North Shore. Okay. So like, it, and in the book, The Art of Dying, we drive, we drive through my town. There's like a famous stretch of Route 1 that goes through. This is uh, Saugus. Saugus, yeah. I, I remember um, that. Uh, I've only been by it a couple of times, but I remember that uh, 70 foot cactus sign. <laughs> it's still there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, it's all this like kind of kitschy 1950s roadside architecture, right. which is kind of cool, like retro cool in a way now mm-hmm. they preserved it. But yeah, so I, I grew up there and, you know, in at that time, there was still like the Irish and Italian mob were still like you'd mm-hmm. see it in the newspaper and it would be like all these globe exposés. And so it was like very much mm-hmm. a real thing. And like, you know, my heritage too, I'm like half Italian and then split between Irish and French. So, you mm-hmm. know, I kind of have... Like it's kind of the heritage too. And like the, you know, so just kind of seeing all that stuff going on and just, it's just like a a whole mythos and growing up, you heard stories and you always knew like someone knew somebody and there was like, uh, you know, that, that just kind of like ominous Mm -hmm. feeling. And you'd see like you had Gennaro and Julo and then you had like Whitey Bulger and the Winter Mm -hmm. Hill Gang. So it was sort of like a a North End Italian and, and South Boston Irish thing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that eventually, you know, kind of went by the wayside first with cleanup of the Irish, you know, the the sorry, right. the Italian um, Gennaro Arjula went to jail and that crime family kind of got weakened. And then, yeah, the Irish mob for a while. And then Whitey Baldwin went on the lamb and, mm-hmm. you know, and that kind of all got kind of cleaned up a bit. Yeah. And there's still pockets of stuff here mm-hmm. and there. By no means what it used to be. I hear Providence so, has still a little yeah, bit Yeah, Providence more has going its own on. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I was always kind of just intrigued by that because, you know, as a as a young teenager, I was reading, seeing those headlines and reading the stories and just like, oh, it's just kind of crazy like that mm-hmm. this stuff is happening and people are getting away with it, right? And, right. you know, finally, oh, he's going to go to trial, but then a witness disappears and just, you know, like that stuff is unfolding in real life and it's just like, Wow, like that's mm-hmm. crazy, you know. And then after, so I went to college in the Boston area, and then after college, I lived, I lived in the city. So I lived for a little bit of time in the South End, but I spent, uh, I think, around two thousand four, two thousand, I say two thousand four to two thousand seven, I was living in Southie in South mm-hmm. Boston. 
And, you know, I actually lived less than like I lived about 500 yards from the old colony projects where Whitey Bulger grew up. Mm. Uh, so it was actually, a, um, you know, it was like a, a two, it was like a single family house that they kind of chopped up into two. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing about it over there, like I'm sure you've, I know you've been there, like you got these projects, they're like literally right across the street from the ocean. They've got right. like full on ocean view of like the Boston Harbor Islands. It's like a beautiful view, but it's like these projects and yeah. like this rough area. And I, I think the, Sadly, I think the old colony projects is not there. In the last couple of years, I think it was taken down. But mm -hmm. I still remember we got a brick through our window. Wow. Um, just because people were, you know, so at the point I lived there, it was fairly gentrified. But yeah, you had to worry about it getting a brick through your window. And mm -hmm. every Halloween when I'm coming home from my office job on the bus wearing my you know, wearing my suit, I'm worried looking around the corner, waiting to get pelted with eggs from like, you know, the 15 year old mm -hmm. healthy kids, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it was really an interesting place. It was, it, it was generally safe, but like you couldn't like piss off the wrong people. Mm -hmm. um, so it was this weird dynamic of this really protective neighborhood, but like, you, yeah, you didn't piss off the wrong person. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and so we knew people who, and were friends with people who were lifelong Southie residents. A lot of everyone knew Whitey Bulger. Everyone had stories about Whitey Bulger. Mm -hmm. uh, they ran the gamut from like, you know, the guy hating the guy to be like, no, he did so much good for the, for the community. Mm -hmm. Like he, he helped my brother out when he, you know, got into trouble and, you know, gave family, donated to the church. And so. Yeah. The kind of Southie Robin Hood kind of. Yeah. yeah, he totally masqueraded as like the Robin Hood of Southie, but at the same time, he was bringing in drugs and um, getting people hooked and, mm -hmm. you know, going into liquor stores and saying, I own this now. Right. That's a pretty um, famous know, story. Because you didn't accept my ridiculously low price. So, yeah. So, like, I, you know, I, I know about a lot of stuff through that. And then I know people who've been friendly with some of the the families in in the North End and like get to eat in like the mm -hmm. secret, you know, the the rooms that the VIPs go to. And so like just, you know, not through firsthand experience, but just hearing all these different stories and just like adding to the mythos. So that's mm -hmm. kind of where I came at the story from is just trying to bring that stuff, some of that stuff to light because it's just like such like amazing what? You had, um, you had a, and again, I don't want to jump the gun too much. You had a couple things in the art of dying that, like, even I, like I said, I had mostly like a pretty hipster college kid experience there. I didn't, you know, get too deep into that kind of stuff, yeah. you know, but I did have a couple weird experiences that I felt like you captured in the art of dying. One was, I remember going to the North End with a friend of mine. We were going to Mike's Pastries. Uh, yeah. we were having a party that night. So we we're going to get some like, uh, cannolis and, uh, I think some like baguettes or something. I don't yeah, yeah. The cannolis are amazing there. Yeah. And, uh, and we were like, Oh, well, let's, let's, you know, we're here. Let's go ahead and grab lunch. It's, it was like February. So it wasn't tourist season at all. So there's nobody walking around. We didn't know where to go. So we just pop into some little Italian restaurant, you know, and if anyone who doesn't know the North end, it's the old part of Boston. It's, you know that Paul Revere's house and stuff, but it's also kind of the little Italy, you know? Um, and it's like you said, it's where the Angelos 
crime family was based, you know. And we pop into this little Italian restaurant. There's nobody in there. The hostess is like surprised we're there. She clearly didn't want to seat us, you know, but we were like, we were just clueless. <laughs> um, uh, she finally seats us. We hear these voices in the background, you know, back in the kitchen. Then they're just kind of talking. It takes forever for our food to come. And it's not particularly good. I remember the whole time we're hearing this conversation happening in the kitchen and then the voice is kind of raised and we hear it's like clearly an argument. We can't understand what's being said. And then finally, as we're like in the middle of our meal, the, the kitchen door is open and these guys come out and it's clearly like the owner of the restaurant and he's being flaked by these guys who are wearing the like the, the kind of the jogging suits, you know, yeah. and, and this older guy in like a suit with like iron gray hair. It was just like right out of Goodfellas or something. That's crazy. And we were like, oh, did we walked into like a mob thing and they see us <laughs> sitting there and I could just see that moment where they were like, who are these guys? And they came over and started and like the older guy came over and started talking to us. It was just like, oh, where are you guys from? You know, we're like, oh, we're just over from Boston University. We're just grabbing lunch. And it was just clear. He was being real friendly, but it was kind of clear. It was like just trying to figure out who were we and what did we hear? you know yeah. and then we you know paid our cab and left and no problem but it was like oh that was uh that wasn't normal <laughs> you know yeah but when you had the like the the scenes in the restaurant where it's like yeah there's nobody there and and uh there's the secret dining rooms in the back and stuff it was like oh that yeah i i i think we we were in one of those places you know yeah it's interesting that's a cool story and it's it's interesting too because like you know when these guys were getting like you know they get pulled over by the cops they'd be like they'd be like the cops buddy you know mm-hmm. they're like oh you know what's you know they were they tried to to play that too and you know i had my brother-in-law's um father who's now deceased was like a longtime boston cop and you know some of the stories i've heard from him like he personal interactions with some of these mobsters and you know always on their best behavior but like you know it was like a story where he kind of got called for like a domestic disturbance that Mm -hmm. was like you know i don't want to go into too many details but like you know involve like someone like killing the cat the 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 girlfriend's cat you know Mm. and throwing it against the wall like gruesome stuff like these guys like yeah you know the the persona of like you know hey we're you know doing good for the neighborhood but then at the same time just like the ruthlessness that um Mm -hmm. you know surfaces so there's definitely that dynamic too i just what i remember about boston is you know weird instances like that where there'd just be this weird sense of menace would like pop up like most of the time everything was fine it's just a normal city but then i'd be in a bar with a friend and some local local guy would like clearly be trying to start a fight with me and it was clear that i was because i was obviously a college student and i figured out later it's because i'm big so that made me a target you know yeah (laughs) um (laughs) i saw so many weird like random bar fights that ended up turning into like five guys jumping some you know it was always some college student took the bait you know went outside and then all of a sudden 10 guys are jumping it you know (laughs) and it was (laughs) and i remember i've i remember thinking it's like oh man that kind of thing wouldn't fly in albuquerque because uh here in new mexico you try you try to pull that kind of thing here you just get shot yeah right we have our own thing here but it's very breaking bad out here yeah um, it's, it's kind of a different thing but yeah i uh it was really interesting uh reading the art of dying because it just it kind of took me back to some of that 
to you know seeing yeah i remember going to charlestown where part of the story takes place and seeing the townhouses with the roof decks you know yeah. and you have you have that's so a that's a major part of the story you know how do you think about you know this is something i talked to uh douglas ford about when i had him on you know and he's got his um story set in florida and we talked about just the idea of like capturing a sense of place like how do you go about thinking about that because i thought i want to talk about one of your short stories as well um it's the uh temple of what is it the temple of the righteous uh i'm forgetting yeah temple of the righteous harvest um which is set in florida but both that and the art of dying you really captured the sense of the environment in a really powerful way how do you go about thinking about that yeah i guess I think, yeah, like the environment's important. And I, I think it's it's maybe twofold. Like one of the things is like for me, I can't really get started on the story and, and have it really take off until I get the right tone. Mm-hmm. So to me, tone, you know, think about like tone and atmosphere almost as, you know, the same thing for, right? It's like that right vibe. Like what's the vibe of this story? And like, mm-hmm. is it like, you know, this the dark gritty feeling of the city or is it sort of like, you know, there's like a Douglas Ford, kind of like the swampy, mysterious mm-hmm. kind of heat or whatever. So I think like for me with The Art of Dying and, and a couple of my other books that are set in Boston, it's just I, I really I grew up there. I really love the city, but it's got like its dirty secrets and it's got mm-hmm. like it's, you know, kind of shiny, nice things, but also kind of like the gritty underbelly, too. And mm-hmm. so bringing that all to the surface, you know, has like a feeling and that kind of, you know, kind of meshes with the characters' attitudes and their vibe. And um, mm-hmm. so it all tied into the tone. And I think with the Temple of the Righteous Harvest, right, that was kind of like set, you know, in like a kind of a, I'll call it like a, a hick town, right, kind of outside mm-hmm. of Gainesville, Florida, where, you know, you, you get the kind of Florida heat and you know, kind of run down small town type type of feel. So, mm-hmm. and then obviously that plays into like some of the characters that are, right. that are in there that the others meet up with. So, yeah, I think it's just, it's just, it's, it's woven into the story and I think it helps to carry the story. And so that's how I try to approach it. I mean, I thought with the art of dying and, and the way you captured Boston, you know, it's one, I, I, I write a lot of stuff set in the Southwest. You know, I'm, I'm in New Mexico. I, I write a lot of stuff set here, Colorado, Utah, Arizona. And I'm always trying to capture both like the beauty and the grittiness of this area. You know, there's, there's a beauty out here, but also a starkness. You know, the desert is very uh, imposing. The mountains can be very imposing, very threatening, but also very beautiful. And I felt like, when I lived in Boston, in a very different way, it had a similar. There's a, it's a beautiful city, but with the, you know, just the cold, stark winters, and you yeah. know, long winters, <laughs> long winters, <laughs> um, and you know, just I remember, you know, the the cemeteries everywhere. You know, there's old Puritan cemeteries everywhere. Yeah, you can hardly read the names on the on the right. tombstone, and they're just like these cool, crooked, thin ones. You know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just, it's that that beauty and darkness kind of together. And then you add the crime thriller aspect with it. I thought you really captured that. That's where I felt like I, I could kind of see that Dennis Lehane sort of influence. And going back to just kind of early in your writing journey, when did you decide that you really wanted to pursue writing as like a career? And when 
when was it that you really started kind of working the 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 crime thriller element into the horror and more kind of fantastical elements? Yeah. Was that a exactly. conscious choice or was it just kind of a natural progression? It was kind of a natural progression. Um, but I, I think, you, you know, I guess I'd have to say, so the second part of the question, maybe I'll take first, like, so the crime, the first real crime thriller I wrote here was The Art of Dying. And mm-hmm. so now my my new one that I should come out in a couple of months is sort of like a follow up to The Art of Dying. And that's I've kind of now I'm kind of shifting back because now that's an occult crime thriller. Mm. Right. So um, I wanted to bring some of that into into it. So but my first other than my sort of, you know, fantasy like Peter Straub um, rip off of The Talisman and Stephen mm-hmm. King. Right. That's just on if no one's going to ever see that one. But <laughs> after that, I did. Uh, a story called Calling of the Lost, which is a pure kind of horror story. Which I just, uh, by the way, I just started. Um, oh, you I'm, did? I'm okay. like three chapters in. I did want to ask about that. So tell us okay, a little cool. bit about that one. Yeah. 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 Um, so that one is sort of like a, um, you know, the premise is, you know, it's my reimagining of like the disappearance in Roanoke Island mm-hmm. if it had happened in the Western Mass, kind of the woods of Western Massachusetts right. in the Berkshires. So it's sort of like it's now 300 plus years later and whatever caused the settlement 300 plus years ago is now happening again. And the mm. children of the ta- town are slowly disappearing one by one. Mm. And for various reasons, it's sort of an unlikely trio of characters who are the only ones who get to understand what's happening through okay. some visitations with, you know, a, a ghost of, you know, that from, from the original time. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's kind of a fun thing, right? Because you got an alcoholic school teacher um, who just lost his job. And then you've got mm-hmm. like a nine-year-old girl who's got imaginary friends. And then you've got like this 15 year old kid who's like the new kid in town who's just kind of a, a, a wise ass who keeps getting himself in trouble with bullies. Mm. So like it's them, the three of them coming together. So and, and so that ends up being like kind of a classic, more of a classic horror story. Mm-hmm. And and I think the progression after that was really just I ended up writing a like a sci fi suspense thriller called The Righteous and the Wicked because mm-hmm. I was just trying to rack in my brain, like, what am I going to write next? And I wanted to take, I wanted to be something original. So I was sort of like, okay, well, what if I start with like a basic premise and then turn it upside down? So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how original it really turned out to be, but that's for, for the audience to decide. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I basically said like, well, okay, well, we're born, we grow old, we die. What happens if someone found a way around that, right? Mm-hmm. So that was born of like, okay, so what would happen in that case? And so, you know, and, and who would be able to figure out how to mm-hmm. protect us from, you know, keep us from aging and dying, right? So it basically like a brilliant scientist who discovers a cure for aging disease, but like, you can't let that secret get out because- Right. Pretty soon, it doesn't do you any good to live forever if you're starving to death because you're competing for resources. Mm-hmm. So it becomes, you know, protecting and what is essentially becomes a cult of a secret cult of immortals. Mm-hmm. And then what happens when that secret gets threatened and someone's going to expose it and then it turns to murder and cover mm-hmm. up. And, um, and so that story is really about just an ordinary guy who stumbles upon that and because his wife you know just died of an aneurysm he's just like this lonely young widower and he's just like it distracts him and so he's like looking into this and he gets himself into trouble 
Mm. And then his brother, who's a Boston police detective, has to bail him out. And so that's when Detective Ray right. Hand. I was go- okay. I was gonna yeah. ask because yeah. I read the description of that book and I thought, now is the the character Jacob in is it the Righteous and the Wicked? That's the name of it. Yeah, the character Jacob in that is the brother of Ray in right. The Art of Dying. I thought yeah. that was the case, but I wasn't 100. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Good. Yeah. And so I'm gonna have to go back and read that one now too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that one takes place in Boston. It's kind of the same thing. Like I do a lot, with, a lot with the city, but you know, everyone was like, oh, I really like the detective character. Like he needs his own book. So I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, we'll get him his own book. Uh, <laughs> so that was, the, that was the logical thing. So that's so, but a little, some elements of the, like, it was a mix because it was sort of like the righteous and the wicked was kind of like a sci-fi suspense thriller with elements of police procedural when mm-hmm. like you brought in, you know, Ray's character. And so Ray's kind of a secondary character, but he factors pretty heavily into this into the story mm-hmm. um, from the midpoint on. So then I kind of progressed into the, the crime thriller. And 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 again, I was sort of like wrestling with I'd really like to write a book about, you know, kind of the Irish Italian mob wars, mm-hmm. you know, like a crime thriller about that. But I also have this idea about this kind of psychotic serial killer artist who, you know, hangs people on his wall and makes living mm-hmm. works of art out of them and keeps them alive so that he can view art in four dimensions, right? Like right. as they progress through time mm-hmm. with time being the fourth dimension. And then it wasn't until I was like, well, wait a minute, what if that's the same book? That's how mm-hmm. The Art of Dying kind of came together. Right. And, uh, you know, it's interesting reading The Art of Dying and I saw that it won a couple awards. I mean, one of the awards it did win was as a horror novel. And, you know, even though it is, you know, it's Boston Crime Wars, it really is like a suspense thriller, serial killer novel, you know, and we are going to talk about the movie Seven as well. And I thought, and this is one one area I really want to talk about, is that kind of that gray area between the two? Because I think people like to talk about these genres as being very distinct. You have the crime thriller, you have the horror story, you have the sci-fi story. And I'm a big fan of, and I'm fascinated by the idea of like, where can we find these intersections? Because I read The Art of Dying, and as I was reading it, I was like, this is 100% a horror novel. Yeah, like, yes, it is a crime thriller. But I found it very frightening, actually. I thought the artist, the character of the artist was very scary. But I also thought the character of Jack Flaherty, who I think was clearly seem modeled after whitey bolter yeah yeah he was (laughs) um (laughs) i found him quite frightening in the way that as i read whitey bolger the story of whitey bolger to me he's kind of a horror character you know he's there's something about whitey bolger that's very hannibal lecterish you know we we think about these psychopaths as having these very human motivations you know like a criminal is having motivate you know it's about money or uh, power or you know it's these like base human motivations but there's something about the psychopath that's so opaque that they almost become like a supernatural monster in some ways uh, there's something about whitey bulger that is like you can't understand him on a rational level like when you really get into the whitey bulger story and some of the truly horrific things that he did that he becomes a horror character he becomes something beyond um just a criminal and I thought you really kind of captured that. Yeah, definitely like a super villain. You know, with with you know that that kind of progression between you know you have the the character that's I think based on Angelo Angelo. Uh, what's his name in the book? Uh, 
Uh, Sal Giabatti. Sal Giabatti, who's more of the, like, the Italian mafia character, who is more like, you know, he's a dangerous man, clearly. You know, probably a sociopath in his way, but very human. And then you have Flaherty, uh, who's, you know, clearly modeled after Whitey Bulger, who starts to become much more something almost... Psychopathic. Something, you know, purely psychopathic. Yeah, that almost starts to tip us into something more in the horror realm, and then you take it all the way to the artist who who really does become a horror character in a lot of ways. So, where where did you? I'm like, how do you think about you know that kind of intersectionality between the genres, and was that was that something that you really wanted to? Did you want the book to to kind of work on all of those levels? I don't think. Con- I don't think I thought about that consciously. It mm-hmm. was more just about telling the the most interesting story that I mm-hmm. could. But it, yeah, like the the crime thriller and the horror elements. Um, I, I actually did a an article for Mystery and Suspense magazine about the what is a horror thriller, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, right, and I think that's kind of what you're asking. So for me, and that wasn't an easy article to write because I. You know, first of all, I I Googled it. I was like, okay, maybe I'm just, you know, I don't always know all these subgenres that people talk about. And so I'm like typing in horror thriller and doing searches and looking on HWA forums and like no one really has a good definition for it mm-hmm. or like a definition. So, right. um, you know, I had to kind of think about what does it mean to me? And so the way I kind of looked at that was like, you know, if you've got a horror story, you've obviously got like some sort of evil, right? You've got mm-hmm. some sort of menacing evil, but, you know, it can be pretty simplistic. It can be supernatural or maybe it's just Jason you know, um, or just a, a killer like in Psycho, you know, and you generally know at the end of the story in some of these pure horror that the character is going to find a way to, to, to meet and there's going to be some epic mm-hmm. battle, right? And you know, it's going to be like this good versus evil. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think to be a horror thriller, you also have to have an element of this kind of like nuanced unfolding mystery and sort of like a a shocking twist Mm -hmm. right so i think both genres have to be have the evil and has to be suspenseful but for me i think it's the kind of the unfolding mystery and sort of like the twist that Mm -hmm. and and more of a psychological element psychological thriller element i think to Mm -hmm. to really make something a horror thriller Mm -hmm. um at least that's the way i i think about it that's interesting because you know i have this definition and i've and you know i'm repeating myself for anyone who's listened to this podcast but you know i teach writing and i talk about horror a lot and i have this definition of uh you know what i think of the difference between science fiction fantasy and horror or you know sort of um like if you want to boil them down to like you know sort of a simplistic definition where i always say science fiction is ultimately about the rational you know it's about extrapolating from what we know of the universe into what could be but it's still within a rational framework you know it's taking science as we understand it and just taking it further than where science is now you know exploring technology further or exploring the limits of what we understand further than where we've taken it yeah um whereas fantasy is about taking some creating new rules you know taking creating a new world but that operates on its own sort of rationality so like if you have you know harry potter it's like well it takes place in a world where there happens to be magic and wizards and but but it still operates based on the rules you know of whatever that world is and then horror to me is about taking the rational world and violating it 
It's bringing in the irrational and basically saying the rules, we think there are rules, but suddenly the rules don't apply. And I think what separates to me, maybe the horror from the thriller is the thriller also kind of operates based on a set of rules in some ways. You know, the procedural, it's about following the clues to reveal the mystery, right? Like you're talking about this kind of unfolding to the twist, you know. But I think where, when I think of the art of dying, the horror comes in with a character like the artist where even though there's there's a rational way to discover who he is what he is there's no rational way to understand if that makes sense yeah and uh, i would say it's the same with jack flaherty where like there's still an opaqueness to the the uh psychology is not quite the right word but there's an irrationality just to the fact that these characters even exist in the world yeah yeah, and just some horrific acts. Yeah. And that's where you get down to the like the questions of good and evil. You know, it's like there's a certain point where it's like there's no way to explain it other than that they're evil, you know. Right. Whereas, you know, in, in like a classic mystery, you know, it's it's less about these kind of primal questions of good and evil, but you bring that in to the art of dying where there's no way to look at these characters as anything other than kind of evil in a primal way. Yeah, and I tried to be I tried to, you know, make the, the artist disturbing, but, you know, also on a couple of like, but you understand his motivations and mm. hopefully at least. And, you know, on some level, some of the disturbing element happens because in some ways you might find yourself, some small part of yourself rooting for the artist with respect to a couple of his victims who maybe deserve it. Yeah. Um, to some degree. They're not like, they're not necessarily likable people. <laughs> yeah. And then you start to question your own like sense of morality. Mm-hmm. Like, I why did I just smirk at his joke as he's torturing this person? Right. Um, what does that say about me? Yeah. So I wanted to kind of evoke some of that too. So like, you're not just kind of weirded out by the story, but you're kind of weirded out by yourself and your mm-hmm. reaction to it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, we can understand the motivations, but then it's it's more the part that makes it irrational and pushes it into horror is it's the imagination that he brings to it, you know, and that he, you know, in creating these horrific works of art, and that's what turns him into a kind of Hannibal Lecter type figure. Yeah. Where it's, you know, because I'm always, I'm always fascinated by, you know, I watch a lot of true crime. And, and, you know, most actual serial killers, when you, when you get to the end of the day, they're just kind of pathetic losers. You know, whenever you find out who it actually is, it's just like some sad guy who, like, you know, is antisocial and can't get along with people, so starts murdering prostitutes or something, you know? Yeah. But when you get these characters like the artist or Hannibal Lecter or something, they're, they're so, there's, there's a larger-than-life quality that is so great about them but again i don't want to spoil anything about the the revelations in the book one thing you know i would love to be able to write a crime thriller and i've tried a few times but one thing that i struggle with as a writer is i don't have the type of brain that naturally is great at that kind of clockwork type plotting how do you approach that like how much pre-planning in terms of building the mystery do you um apply to the work before you sit down to write yeah it it's it's a good question because writing a crime thriller uh especially one that's doesn't have any like so like this one right mm-hmm. it's just all grounded in reality um or what could be real right mm-hmm. so 
and my main character is a detective. And so he's got to follow certain procedures. There's certain people you would expect that he's going to interview. Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't interview, you know, this person's mother or this person's cousin, people mm-hmm. are going to be like, well, why wouldn't like, that doesn't make any sense. Right. So like they would have totally done that. So you wrestle, I, I wrestle with how do you make this realistic without getting into excruciating detail and have mm-hmm. interview everybody and have case notes and all kinds of stuff. And, and so you know, you have to alternate between like, okay, well, let's, let's follow some of the what are going to be the more interesting interviews. And let's see those interviews, you know, they mm-hmm. kind of get the people riled up and, you know, create some sort of tension. And then there's just some summary as the partners are talking later on, like, just almost narrative referencing, mm-hmm. that they talk to so and so and mm-hmm. nothing's there or, you right. know, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So that is a struggle to kind of, you know, and it takes a certain amount of organization to to sort of know what you have to cover and still make it interesting without getting buried in the minutiae. And then, you know, being grounded in the reality of like, okay, well, this sort of forensic test would take this long. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like I don't want their, like, I try to keep it as real as I can in, in the grounds of not taking too many liberties with police or forensic procedures. And, and sometimes that makes you go into some interesting places because you learn mm-hmm. something that you didn't know and you're like, you know, you can kind of work that in. But, you know, the plotting, it just, it t- does take a lot of organization, especially remembering, because there's a lot of characters, like mm-hmm. a lot of my characters who could turn out to be bigger involvement than you know later on in the story. So you got to keep all that straight. And at at its core, it's also a mystery. So, you know, I I think that's the other thing about, you know, my couple of stories is that it's possible for someone to figure out who the artist is, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and you don't want to be... You don't want it to be one of those things where you're sort of untrue to the audience and there's like no way they could have figured that out because... Mm -hmm you know, you were in that person's head and they said something which they would never think because it's them, right? Like, you know, you you, you sometimes get like that kind of, you know, I've read some books where that sort of thing happens and it, and it kind of, it turns me off a little bit because you're mm-hmm. like, you know, there's like a cheap trick, right? Right. Um, so, you know, having enough of that mystery and red herrings and kind of said, you know, putting things in the right place, you know, you do find yourself going back and, and, and setting that up um, to some degree. But like, I feel like for me, the mystery doesn't really start to unfold until the middle of the book, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think and really pick up momentum. And I think by the time I get to the middle, I've sort of known 90% of what's going to happen, you know, already. But it's it's really when you're driving towards that middle, you're like, I'm not really sure which direction mm-hmm. this is going to take. And, you know, like, I don't want to spoil anything, but like, you know, for the art of dying, like who ends up in like the final battle scene? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that wasn't known from the beginning. Like that was more of a um, like who was going to be there and, and and stuff was was more came later. Did you know as a writer, like who the artist would turn out to be? Uh, from the beginning that I knew yeah you did I will say uh because you know I, I read a lot of horror but I, I do read a fair amount of of crime fiction as well and my big beef with so much crime fiction I would say the, the the stuff that doesn't work as well maybe is exactly what you just said it's it's either you see the twist coming from a mile away and then you get there and it's anticlimactic because it was like you're two steps ahead of the writer they're just telegraphing it 
from the third chapter or something. Or conversely, they're hiding it so much because they don't want to reveal the twist that it's completely arbitrary. And so it's just, you know, you want that. And I talk to my students about this all the time where it's like the twist ending. It's such a tricky balance between you want that, oh, shit, ending, not the, oh, really? Kind of reaction or like, what? Kind of. Yeah. And I thought you did with, and again, I don't want to spoil anything. But when we do get the reveal at the end of The Art of Dying, it was, to me, it was just a chef's kiss kind of reveal i thought you set it up so really like i thought it's an almost perfectly plotted novel i thought it's a real page turner i thought as we're we're going through the procedure you've got a really great balance of exploring the character of ray and i want to talk a little bit more about ray here in a second exploring you know his relationship with his family with you know previous girlfriends with his partner you know with his brother um, but also, you know, going through the nuts and bolts of an investigation and then, you know, kind of all, everything kind of dovetails really nicely in this great reveal at the end. And in a really climactic moment, you know, a lot of times we end up in these kind of climactic moments at the end of these kind of stories that just feel so rushed. And this just felt like really well paced um where you really like, even when, when we have that oh shit moment of like, we find out who who's who um you still kind of take your time you know you don't you don't rush to the ending you you give us you still have a few revelations to give us towards the end um which i thought was really great yeah no thank you yeah i i think it comes out of a pet peeve of mine where Mm -hmm. and i can't think of any examples off the top of my head but where you're reading a really great story and then the ending is just rushed and anticlimactic and like if i think of the book it I don't, it's been a while since I read it. And I know they had like the whole ritual of Chud and it's Mm -hmm. sort of like, you can just see it as like, only perceive it as like, it was done a lot better in the book, Mm -hmm. but you know, in like the the movie and especially the early, like I'm talking back to the the mini series, Mm -hmm. like that was like, are you kidding? Like, it was like so fast and like, and so- well, they punch you know, a spider to death at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, and you feel like a little bit robbed because you're like, it was so good up to this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- I've experienced that with a number of books. So, you know, I may go too far in the other direction. I'm just like, for me, it's always like this epic, you know, it, mm-hmm. you, you know, it's like, I don't think I've written a, a final scene that was less than like 30 or 40 pages or something like that. Because yeah. it's like, you know, it's the... It has to be the crowning kind of epic, you know, struggle for me and just... Um... Well, you do what what I think good suspense fiction and good horror fiction should do. And that I think we all, all of us who are trying to do this struggle with is just a constant ratcheting up of, you know, tension, constant picking up of pace, you know, as, as it moves towards the conclusion. And, you know, just it, it's a train that just kind of keeps chugging and chugging and chugging and just speeding up as it as it goes one thing i i I liked about the book is that the chapters are overall pretty short so there's really no fat on the book but nothing feels rushed and you do give us some time you know i i appreciated the procedural aspects because you give us some time 
to follow the cops down a couple dead ends that never feel uh, boring or like wasted space because, you know, it's just enough to kind of show this is what the job is, you know, and and they're all kind of revealing in some way, you know, what whether it's reveals something about the characters or, you know, okay, well, maybe it's a dead end in this way, but then, oh, but here's, it prompts this kind of epiphany or this revelation or oh, maybe this yeah. new idea or, you know. Yeah. I thought that was really well. Yeah, thank you. Well done. Again, don't want to get too specific because I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, but I mean, like you as a writer and as a screenwriter, like you know that too. It's like Mm -hmm. if if you're not like, so it's okay to like interview a character that turns out to be a dead end. But like you said, Mm -hmm. if it reveals something new, that's going to give them some other idea Mm -hmm. or it reveals something about their, it has to reveal something to the extent that it's not anything new. You're not doing any new ground. That scene has to be cut. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it's just that that would be a perfect example of a scene where you just, you know, you mentioned, hey, we, we interviewed this guy and nothing, you know. Right. You know, I didn't get the feeling that it was him or he had an alibi or whatever. And in the short chapter thing, I think just, you know, I, I think it it is helpful. I do appreciate that when I read books because it does help like, oh, it's a page turner. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, because the chapters are only three or four pages long. Like, mm-hmm. you know. It's kind of cheating, but it works. Yeah. But at the same time, like when I find myself like sitting down and I'm like bored, like, okay, I got to get finished getting through this chapter because I want to get to the next. I'm like, if I'm bored writing this chapter, the reader is going to be bored too. So like, mm-hmm. you know, that's cut, 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 cut. Just keep the story enough of the the background in the universe to kind of make it interesting to for your world building but mm-hmm. if you're starting to get bored so is the so is the reader right so. and i've done that in you know both in short fiction and some of the longer fiction i'm working on where i've realized like i'm in the middle of a chapter or a short story and i'm like oh i'm getting bored but okay well that's telling me something <laughs> yeah like if i'm bored then that's certainly a reader's gonna get bored um, so I need to rethink where I'm going with this. And I yeah. have the problem because I'm very much a pantser as a writer. So I don't, I've learned as a screenwriter, that's one thing screenwriting teaches you is you learn, you have to learn how to outline. So I can do it if I have to, but I really don't like it. How much, yeah. how much time do you spend on with, with a book like this on like outlining beforehand, or is it more in the revision process? after the fact where you make things kind of work because for me a lot of times i kind of approach a first draft a first draft is kind of my working outline but that can be kind of a risk because you can really write yourself into some dead end corners that way yeah i am more of a pantser like i'll give you like with my new book like the art of dying because i've got you know a full-time job and Mm -hmm. you know my kids are getting a little bit older now but it took me four years to write that book Mm. and so I'm going slow enough that I can be a pantser because I've got all this time to think about it. And Mm -hmm. for me, like, no matter if I, I've tried to out, like I tried to outline with my new book Mm -hmm. and I think I got like, cause I'm like, I don't want it to take me four years to do this one. So I tried to outline, I think I got like seven or eight chapters and I was like, I just like, I'm just that I get writer's block trying to outline and I'm like, okay, let me just sit down and try and write it. And of course I sat down and I started writing it and 70% of what I outlined didn't happen. Right. No. Me, everything gets created in the moment because I'm like, you know, I'll be writing and then I'll introduce 
a character and I'll be like, oh, she's in on it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I didn't know that I didn't even know this person existed. Like, for me, that's part of where the fun is. And so it, it's almost like a, a situational thing where, you know, for the art of dying, like, I, okay, I knew I had the, the basic premise, the first victim is a Irish mob foot soldier, mm-hmm. the Irish mob thinks the Italian mob did it, but there's right. really serial killer at work, right? So like, I can take that in a number of different directions. Like, obviously, they have to go to the crime scene, they have to meet some people, interview some people. So like, like, for me, that's enough to work on. And so, you know, you just as you're writing, I st- they start to meet people, people say stuff. I didn't know he was going to say that, but he did. And that took it down an interesting twist. So mm-hmm. for me, like it just things become a lot less forced mm-hmm. and a little bit more fluid and natural when you don't outline. So I think it's just come up with the basic premise. You know, maybe, you know, ultimately who does it. Um, you Like, you know, the beginning, the middle you know, at the end, maybe you want the good guy to win, but you don't know how it's going to happen. Um, and then you just let the story kind of, mm-hmm. you know, weave its way together. And you might go down some wrong dead end pass and have to go back and, you know, mm-hmm. erase a line or two, you know? Right. Um, like for, for me, that's... Well, that's encouraging because that, that sounds similar to my process, which makes me think... Because I read, I read something like The Art of Dying and I think oh, well, this is the type of thing I would never be able to write because it reads to me like, oh, this must have been meticulously planned ahead of time. It wasn't. Um, and it sounds like it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that maybe that that gives me a little bit of hope that I could I could yeah. figure my way through something like this. Because I think you could do it. One thing I do tell my students sometimes is I, is I say, you know, one thing I found to be helpful is you don't have to have the whole story figured out, but it's good to figure out if you don't even have your climax figured out, figure out what your crisis plan is, you know, kind of going into your third act. Yeah. Like if you can figure that out, uh, figure out what your first act is and figure out what your crisis point is. And if you can figure those two things out, it, it kind of gives you a trajectory. I think that's good advice. And I think, you know, and that it just so many people like I've talked to, they've always wanted to write a book and they've got a great idea, but like, I think they get stuck on that. I don't know the whole story, but mm-hmm. you really just have to sit down and work with it and mold it and, you know, it's like, uh, I'm not an artist, but like, I can imagine like just, you know, molding something as a sculptor, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know that they always know exactly what it's going to look like. I think you get inspired along the way as you, you know, maybe the chisel slips and you're like, oh, I guess that's the nose, (laughs) right? Right. And you're like, (laughs) yeah. You know, so I I think it's like, and and it it takes it in interesting directions. Yeah, the happy accidents. Yeah. And for me, that's where the fun, that's where the magic is because like I get surprised and excited. I'm like, Oh, that would be amazing. Right. Like in Mm -hmm. the moment when I didn't know that, but I think when you do that, you let the characters dictate the story Mm -hmm. and it stays truer to the characters and their emotions and their motivations um, (laughs) because you let them tell you where you're going to go. Right. Um, exactly and if you're trying to force them down one place and they don't really seem naturally to go there you got to let that go and let them go where they're going to go well that's a good segue because i do want to talk characters a little bit in the art of dying specifically talk about ray because i thought ray was a great he's my favorite type of cop character in in that he reminded me did you ever watch the wire the show the wire i didn't know um well if you ever get a chance to watch it 
the the character of McNulty, uh, who's the you could sort of say the lead, although it's such an ensemble show. Um, but he's kind of the lead cop character. And what I love about McNulty on the wire is that he takes the trope of the kind of the renegade cop, um, who's like you know, gonna do it his own way kind of thing, and shows what that person's actually like in real life, which is like, oh, that guy's a pain in the ass, and he's like real self-destructive. And he like, you know, he's gonna he's gonna sabotage his own life, you know. And Ray's not exactly that, but I think there's an honesty to how you depict Ray where Ray's got a little bit of that, you know. He's he's um no one's gonna tell Ray what to do. And he kind of gets himself into trouble uh because yeah. of this. And yeah. he makes a few decisions that are not good to sit and again, I don't want to spoil anything, <laughs> but I thought, like, how did you how did you go about approaching him? Because I thought even though he's you know, as compared to the McNulty character from The Wire, who really is, he's like a disaster on that show. A likable disaster, but a disaster. Uh, I wouldn't say that's exactly right, but he's he's a guy with a lot of problems and clearly some unresolved stuff that is, uh, uh, like I said, leads him to some some sort of self-sabotaging kind of behaviors. How much of that was kind of conscious and how much of that was just sort of discovered kind of through the the process of writing and how much of that comes from the earlier book, The Righteous and the Wicked? Yeah, no, good question. So I think I'd say... Like, it's a little bit of a mix of everything, because I think in, you know, he kind of establishes himself in The Righteous and the Wicked as a um, kind of like a like a brash kind of gregarious, you mm. know, guy who's like, you know, a very light people like him. He's got he's charismatic, funny, but, you know, he's going to do things his way and mm. he's not afraid to challenge authority right and you know he's he's not about to be bullied but at the same time you know in 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 that book it's revealed that you know his his father was killed in front of right. his eyes and you know gets uh stabbed on a subway station when he's 15 years old so he and they never caught the guy so mm-hmm. underneath it all there's the this this burning like his you know he almost has a blind rage for injustice. And right. so if someone's going to get away with someone who deserves to be behind bars, like he's going to put himself out. He's going to like just charge into that situation um, rather than let somebody go. So there's almost like a um, a rashness that he can't seem to overcome because mm-hmm. it's just like this embedded sense of justice that's in mm-hmm. him you know, almost to his own detriment and it causes some, right. So some pretty um, significant decisions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I wanted to show like in the next book, the one that's going to come out in a couple of months, like learning from his mistakes and kind of mm-hmm. the growth as he gets partnered up with somebody new right? type of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it was, some of it was conscious and some of it was just like, you know, I think it kind of just started out that he was kind of just like this kind of brash gregarious guy and, you know, but then really just understanding the motivations mm-hmm. behind that and then playing a little bit at, at the extremes of, mm-hmm. you know, you know, and I know I've got, you know, some family that are, are, are cops too. And like, you, you hear a lot about the mm-hmm. union. It's like, okay, yeah. Like, yeah. 
you know, the captain's going to say what he's going to say, but there's no way that's what we pay union dues for. Right. right? Like, <laughs> I love that. You have a line kind of like that yeah. in there where he's like, like, he can mouth off to the lieutenant and he's like, you know, the union's got his, gonna have his back, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But he does kind of, you know, he pushes things pretty far in a few moments. Mm -hmm. And I do love like, there's a moment because so much of it is we're, we're kind of inside Ray's perspective. But I felt like you as an author had enough self-awareness where you're giving us little glimpses, or even though we're hearing it from Ray's perspective, we're also like, you're giving us just enough hints to be like, do I trust his perspective here? Because like, he has a moment, and again, I don't want to say too much, but there's a shooting, and he's, you know, as, as you know, uh, department procedure, he's supposed to talk to a kind of departmental shrink, and he's immediately defensive, and right away is like, I don't have PTSD, this is and i'm like really do you <laughs> can we can we really say that <laughs> i like i said i just think there's an honesty to where you know it's, it's the idea that a lot of what makes him a good cop is maybe what makes him not good for the world in some ways you know makes him a, a difficult person in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and also like you know you have the his brother kind of calls him out at one point, you know, there's a point where he says, uh, again, as a consequence of a really bad decision, he's getting a drink with his brother and he says, wow, you're doing a really great job of cheering me up. And his brother's like, I'm not here to cheer you up. I'm here to tell you you fucked up, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like, get your shit together. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was, you know, I, I love that you kind of, you really walk the line of um, not being afraid to have moments where Ray's not always the most likable guy, you know? Yeah, you know, where even though I empathize with him all the way through, I don't always sympathize with him. You know, and yeah. I think that that makes him very human and very real. Yeah, I, you know, I wrestled with, you know, we're probably talking about the same moment in the book, mm -hmm. right? Like I read, right. like I, you know, and I remember the my editor that I work with saying, like, just so you know, there's going to be people that's going to piss off a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, it, I felt like. If it's the moment we're talking about, there's there's a thing that happens that he does, and I and you kind of see it coming, and I was just like, don't do it, <laughs> Ray, don't don't do it. What are you doing? And then 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 he does it, and you're like, oh man, you know. Yeah. But but I thought you you really handled it well because it's like, well, I see how you kind of got yourself in that situation, <laughs> you know. Um, and and yeah, now you're gonna have to now you're gonna have to deal with the fallout. Um, and you know, you don't, again, I don't sympathize with him, but I certainly empathize with him, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think I, I, I really respected that as a creative choice where I think, you know, when I go back and watch like, like the dirty Harry movies, for instance, which I have a definite soft spot for movies like that, or even like, uh, I just recently, cause of course it was Christmas. I was sick all through the, and you can still hear it in my voice a little bit. I was sick all through the holidays. So if, what do you do when you're sick over Christmas? You binge all of the Die Hard movies. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, John McClane, great character. Uh, Dirty Harry Callahan, great character. But these are like, um, you know, these movies romanticize these characters in a way that it's like, I do like that we have the counterpoint, you know, where you have a character like Ray, where it's like, no, in real life, that guy is a mess in some ways and there's there's actual consequences to being like that you know you, you don't get to walk around like dirty harry just shoot people and <laughs> be be the you know be the road cop or whatever like you know 
question authority and you know do it your own way and have nobody ever question you i like like there was i thought like i said there's an honesty to that i like and i like that people call them out in the book yeah and i i try you know it's that's it's a fine line right because you don't want people like you don't want that moment to to kind of wreck it in the eyes of people so you want it to be real and relatable and so Mm -hmm. you've got to like you've got to challenge them and have them see like, okay, yeah, that was a big mistake and, you mm-hmm. know, call them out. And, you know, I, in some of the reviews of that book that like, I do get some flack for, you know, people talking about, you know, the macho cop sexism and stuff like yeah. his, his partner, Billy is like probably a sex addict and a womanizer. Mm-hmm. And but, like, he probably talks like a lot of real cops do. Well, and Billy's a good example of where that kind of can take you, you know? Yeah. But again, he's also a very human. Like, I never felt like, I didn't feel like the book is endorsing. (laughs) Right. And so I tried to have, I'm glad to hear you that because, you know, I tried to have a number of places where like people call him out on Mm -hmm. that, right? So even Ray does. Right. So you're trying to say like, look, because look, these people exist, right? Yeah, they're not necessarily bad people. I don't want to pretend everybody is all good and like you know this is what we want cops to be like no there's like there's good cops there's bad cops there's in between and like at the end of the day these people are real and they all have their flaws and you know if you you don't want to to come across as necessarily condoning some of what is bad behavior and so to me the solution is not to delete all the bad behavior it's to leave it in but then have the lens to view it against to say like i'm not sure you should be saying that or doing that you sound creepy yeah but you know you're never going to please everybody and there's still people going to be pissed off at that yeah but i i what i like about the line that you walk with that and i and this is maybe where people get pissed off about it is you're you're not i think you uh, my impression of your kind of authorial perspective on it is you're you're kind of pointing out like yeah these are flawed characters but you're also not sitting there preaching at us and telling us to judge them either you know it's sort of an acknowledgement of like these aren't the greatest guys in the world but they're there to do a job and uh so there's people who are maybe going to come in and they're going to look they want a level of condemnation that i don't think the book needs personally yeah i think that would be a distraction or that would you know it would turn it into preaching and that's not you know that that wouldn't be any more honest i don't think it's definitely a delicate balance yeah but but i think the honesty is that like you're showing them warts and all you know they're they're good cops they're not bad people i didn't even think billy the partner he's not a bad guy but he's not you know he's he's blown up his own marriage he's like you said, he's clearly a sex addict. He's says some pretty nasty things about various uh, women in the book. And like you said, those guys exist in the world. And like, you know, but at the same time, I found a lot of his dialogue really funny. And a lot of the like the back and forth between him and Ray, very funny. But you have just enough distance where it's like, I'm laughing. I'm laughing at their back and forth. And at the same time, I'm also like, yeah, but I wouldn't necessarily want to hang out with these guys. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like there's just enough distance there. that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like you said, it's a type. Yeah, it is. And so, but it was also interesting to go the other way in the new book, right? Where he's going Mm -hmm. to kind of learn from some of his mistakes. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, now I'll just 
plug the new one real quick if I can. Like sure. So now it's sort of like the his his police cap the police captain um, that he works for his his niece goes missing in Salem, Massachusetts. Mm. And he's sort of estranged from his own brother. And he's like, I, I need someone in on the investigation. The chief there is an old Air Force buddy. I want you to go over there on loan and lead the investigation. Mm-hmm. So he gets put on there to, to lead this investigation and basically takes the case away from the other lead detective who mm. is kind of like a like a um like a very likable but tough Latina cop who just got promoted to mm detective and so now he's coming there and taking the case mm, um, so they're so partnered together so now he's partnered that's with, a very you know, different dynamic <laughs> a female character so yeah. who's resentful of him coming in so sure. it's a different dynamic and so you got this unfolding missing persons case which looks like it started to be linked to other stuff you know on the fringes of salem's witchcraft underground and it becomes mm. like an occult crime thriller Oh, that sounds great. When is that coming out? Um, it should be end of, I'd say by the end of February. Okay, uh, cool. Should, so uh, it should be available for pre-order sometime in, in February. I'm still working in the editing. It's off with the editor, my editor right now, and I'm having the cover design worked on. So once I get all those elements together, mm-hmm. it, it should be available. So um, and that does have it's an occult crime thriller, but there is some supernatural elements to oh, it. Oh, like okay, it, cool. To the supernatural occult. And there'll be plenty of people who are gonna be pissed off about that, right? Because they'll be like, no, this is a crime thriller. You know, you have to so mm-hmm. we'll see. But yeah, and I considered that, but and what is that? What's the title of that one? Just so people it's can know. It's gonna be called the burying point. The burying point. Okay, great. Um, which is the name of a of the oldest cemetery in Salem. Oh, cool. Well, I'm yeah. that's fascinating because I have um, you know, having lived out there, I have I have this very specific memory of going to Salem. And, you know, it's it's so weird because, you know, growing up out here, you hear all the stories of Salem witch trials and you have this image of Salem that you think is gonna be like the movie The Witch or something. And then you go up there and it's so kitschy and like it's like, you know, I think people come out here and they go to Roswell and they think it's gonna be you know, you're going to have actual UFOs like flying over the town and then you go there and it's, it's like, you know, like a theme park <laughs> basically. Yeah. So it's like, I'm fascinated by the, like the kind of two things coexisting in one place, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's cool. Um, and I do like, I like that you're, you're exploring this new dynamic with the partnership that that's yeah. going to be interesting. Yeah. So it was, it was fun. It was fun to write. Um, and the, the dynamic between those two characters and, Mm-hmm. um uh trooper garrison's in it as well um mm-hmm. so he'll factor in and and you know come to help them once it starts to cross state you know city lines and stuff mm-hmm. like that so yeah it was a lot of fun so i'm excited for it cool real quick i want to talk just a little bit more about that short story uh temple of the righteous harvest because i did see so this is in the book monstorm which was a charity anthology from Madness Heart Press. It came out just this past year, I believe. Yeah, 2023. Yep. And I just happened to notice that you're on the the Stoker reading list with this, a recommended reading list with this story. So uh, we talked about it a little bit, but just tell us a little bit more about the story, kind of where it came from. Sure. And what it yeah, is. Yeah, so this one came together, like, right, it was it was kind of a, a, a cool thing. Like the this. Southwest Florida chapter of the HWA was mm-hmm. just newly formed. And, you know, D- Douglas Ford, who you mentioned, is like mm-hmm. the leader of our 
little group and um we've got like you know a lot of members now and we sort of as we're building it up and then hurricane ian happened in like you know mm. in Port charlotte area it just it was devastating right. and, you know we had the idea like the, the editors um you know josh and matt had the idea of like you know we've got a bunch of horror writers here we could all do like a anthology and like have the proceeds go to the local food bank for hurricane ian relief and mm -hmm. you know I, I think doug who had done a lot of work with madness heart, heart press and right um I think some others who'd been published in there, you know, and pitched the idea and 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 they were like, yeah, let's let's do it. So we, a bunch of us submitted stories and, you know, and we went broader than our group, but, um, you know, some from our group, some from others. I think Owl going back's there and, mm -hmm. um, you know, some others. And it's, you know, it ended up being a fairly good list of folks. I think Jeff Strand wrote the forward. Yes, Jeff Strand wrote the forward. You've got Al going back. I'm just looking at some of the other people. Christine Morgan. It's, it's a good, uh, Kinsey Jennings. Um, there's yep. a good, uh, of course, Douglas. Uh, uh, Christy Schoonover. Uh, Lisa Morton. You've got a good uh, table yeah. of contents there. Yep, yep. Yeah, no, it's pretty good. And so, you know, I, I guess the premise for that story was just like, there was a hurricane whose name escapes me now where being fairly new to Florida at the time, I think I was in Florida for about five years at the time. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was a big hurricane coming up through Tampa Bay. And so we basically were like, where are we going to go? Cause we were living in like an old bungalow with like paper thin mm -hmm. windows and, you know, that type of thing. And, and so we ended up like evacuating to the panhandle. We went up to Destin because that was mm. like, only thing on the cone that wasn't looking like like it was the only model where it wasn't going to get hit um under any circumstance and you know that should be like a i guess like a seven hour drive maybe mm -hmm. but it ended up taking like 14 or 15 hours and it, like people are like it was the first time i've ever been like really afraid because mm -hmm. people stalled out on the side of the road right they right. can't go into any gas stations because they're bagged over with like they've tied a paper, a plastic bag over the pump, over mm -hmm. the nozzle because they're tapped out. So like, right. you know, we must have gone like we're running low on gas. Um, you know, every time we pull in, you know, you can't get gas there. And are we going to make it or are we going to end up on the side of the road mm -hmm. when the hurricane comes in like eight hours later? Because no one's going to be able to tow you because there's a thousand other people stranded. Right. And that was like, you know, having a, a couple of like eight and 10 year old kids in the, in the back seat, like as a parent and you're like, Oh my God, I'm like going to fail my family. Right. And mm -hmm. at least let's go get food. We went to like a McDonald's, they shuttered the McDonald's and they're like, we're out of food. Wow. Like, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like <laughs> it was, it was crazy. So the premise of that story kind of, you know, taps into that fear. And it's like, mm -hmm. uh, like a, a couple, like a young couple who just got married, they're both ex-Marines, and mm -hmm. they are fleeing a, a, a catastrophic hurricane from, you know, driving up from the Keys. And they get as far as you're know, driving inland to, to about, you know, just outside of Gainesville, Florida, which is kind of, you know, central part of the state, right uh, in the middle. And they run out of gas and they're like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Maybe we, we're going to, they get to the point where they're going to have to hunker down. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they roll into this beat up podunk town, you know, a lot of like really kind of, and, and you saw this during hurricane Ian, like people like 
were spray painting thing, you know, signage on like there where they board up their windows and mm -hmm. they'd, you know, be cursing Ian or then some people had political slogans right. and like, you know, so it was kind of this almost like, you know, hillbilly town that they that they come to. And the only building that looks like it, you know, has adequate structure to withstand a storm is like this old stone church. But the sign on the church is kind of they've hand painted their own sign and right. it looks to be blood temple yeah. of the righteous harvest. And they're like, OK, let's <laughs> you know, go in here. And then, you know, you wind up taking shelter with who you find out to be a cult of devil worshiping cultist yeah so you know what's worse that or the hurricane so you know and then all kinds of like fun things and ensue from there yeah it's a fun story and i love because it's it's got a very you know talking about the stephen king influence it's got to me it's got a very kind of children of the corn kind of vibe but then sort of for like a Trump era America kind of feel yeah. with this hurricane backdrop. But one thing I love, you know, like I, I have a, a screenplay that I wrote years ago called Hunted. That's a, a werewolf story. And my uh, setup for it, as I always say, it's rednecks versus werewolves. And it came from a couple of friends of mine who went camping out in the Four Corners area of New Mexico, which is kind of very near the Navajo nation. And they claimed that a skinwalker came into their campsite yeah and if you know the the whole skinwalker right. myth and one of my friends was saying he was laying in bed and he heard this thing walking around and he was sitting there with his gun like he had a rifle and he was like calling out like to my other friend if that's you call out because i'm about to shoot you you know <laughs> and this then they saw a paw pushing on his tent <laughs> <laughs> that's but, a great premise i love yeah. that <laughs> but one thing i loved is i was like this is a great setup because whenever you see the like the this scene in a movie it's always some yuppie couple who are like out and this is always the opening scene of a movie and it's the yuppie couple out camping and then the werewolf attacks and it's like you know the guy gets gutted and then it's the girl who's half naked and she's running screaming through the and then she gets attacked and it's like then roll credits or whatever right and i was like i love that it's like a couple rednecks with guns and then here comes the werewolf you know <laughs> um so what i loved with your setup is that it's you know it's it's almost the children of the court and setup it's the young couple and she's pregnant and they're trying to escape this hurricane and then they run into this cult but I, what i loved is that there are a couple ex-marines um, and that they just got back from Kabul or whatever. And it's like, they can kind of take care of themselves, yeah, you know? She steps up in a big way. <laughs> she steps up in a big way. Yeah, I like that she does, some, she does a little bit of ass kicking. Yeah. I thought that was a great unexpected twist <laughs> to the, to the kind of the setup, you know, it's, a, it's a setup we all recognize, but then you took it in a much more interesting direction. So yeah, I would, I would definitely recommend, uh, it's actually, I've read a couple of the other stories in there. Um, I haven't read the entire anthology, but it's it's a really good anthology overall. I yeah, would, really good uh, recommend. So it's Monstorm from Madness Heart Press. And uh, yeah, like I said, you're on the recommended reading list for the Stokers, which uh, should be, uh, they should be announcing, I think at the end of this month, maybe. Okay. I'm yeah, not no, sure. Was, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was that was good to see. I, that, you know, there's, a, there's obviously a lot of good stuff on there. So, right. Uh, but um, def definitely good to see. Yeah. Um, so as always, I ask people to recommend a movie. And, and usually, you know, we try to go for something obscure, but this time we're going for something a little more well-known. But I thought it just goes so perfect with The Art of Dying, and it's one of my all-time favorite movies. So you recommended the movie Seven. Yeah. Which uh, 
I love, I think a lot of people listening to this love, but just talk about your history with that movie and kind of uh, where you kind of draw inspiration from when you, when you're working on something like the art of dying. I think, you know, just like the atmosphere of that movie is just Mm -hmm. phenomenal. And just like the, you know, the premise of like the city, which is an unnamed city, right. Mm -hmm. In the, you know, I, I think they filmed it in, in L.A. and it was raining a lot. And then they that basically they made it was like raining in every scene, you know, outside. And I don't know that they ever really talk about it. It just is. It's just mm-hmm. like it's like miserable and dark and gloomy and gritty. And, you know, um, I think Morgan Freeman's character is just mm-hmm. like, you know, so like disenchanted with the city and he's ready to retire and you know, Brad Pitt's character Mills is like, you know, excited to be like, you know, getting from the small town to like the excitement of the city and getting some action. But like, it's like the coldness and the depravity of the city and like, you know, the getting into like the seven deadly sins and like, you know, people Mm -hmm. are like, these are horrible people living in the city and people are turning a blind eye to it. So it's just like this really dark, gritty, existence and like the only mm-hmm. kind of like bright light is like Gwyneth Paltrow's character and so mm-hmm. like there's a lot of like contrast in the in the book with like the darkness and then like you know even like the unlikely friendship that that Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman's character start right. to, to get and stuff as they're chasing you know the John Doe character and um so you get like that whole atmosphere and then you've got like the unraveling of like piecing together the seven deadly sins. And again, Mm. it's like, it's not just like a murder. It's like a really creative, horrifically created artistic madman's nightmare of, you know, um, of a murder, right? And each one's different, Mm -hmm. right? Because it fits the sin, which is kind of cool too, right? Because when you think about like a serial killer and like, okay, they're, you know, Buffalo Bill skins the women, like, okay, every woman's the same, like, but this was different to fit every sin. So that was really interesting. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, there's just some phenomenal jump scares and, you know, and right. just the the final dark ending, yeah, which it just stays like the staying power of that ending, like the, the what's in the box um, <laughs> and like how the two final sin, like I don't want to do the spoiler, but how the two final sins kind of like, you yeah. know, are almost you know, the killer just pulling the the puppet strings on the the the, the detectives and just the, the darkness is just like it's just a phenomenal um for me just movie it just hits on all uh, fires on all cylinders i think yeah like what 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 would you say like it like what well, for, it i remember when that movie came out i was in high school i was probably junior in high school and i actually went and saw it with my mom which i would say would be (laughs) awkward except that movies i always say like when people wonder where i get like my dark sensibility 100 comes from my mom even though she's not really into the like the supernatural horror but she's all about the like the gory serial killer stuff (laughs) so that was that movie's right up her alley but i remember watching the trailers for it i didn't know who david fincher was i remember being a typical probably you know teenage boy in the 90s thinking of brad pitt as like the legends from the fall guy or something so i was like what's this dumb cop movie with brad pitt like i'm not 
And I think my, me and my mom, we were like, man, eh, we have nothing better to do. Let's go see this movie. I had no high hopes for it at all. And I just remember being like, just, I felt like my brain was cracked open by that movie. And it was back to the idea of like, you know, this, this kind of crossover between horror and like a crime thriller. Like that was the first movie I think that really made me see the possibilities there. Yeah. That's a horror thriller for sure. I think it's a horror thriller. I think it's 100% a horror movie. And I think John Doe, back to what I was saying about, you know, like you can follow the police procedural aspects and there's a way, although even though in uh, they never really, all of their police tricks never really discover who he is, you know. Yeah. Um, but there's a way to, you know, to to find him in, in, you know, by following the evidence. But there's no real way in a rational way to understand him. Yeah. And I thought that was really fascinating. Of course, you know, Kevin Spacey, problematic dude at this point, but it's such a, it's still just such brilliant a brilliant performance. performance yeah it really is i didn't realize that the time it was shot in la i think i always assumed it was like somewhere on the east coast of course now it's obvious what the last scene that they're out in southern california having lived in la and spent some time in downtown la it's like oh okay yeah this does look like seven you know the only difference is it doesn't rain like that <laughs> they clearly had yeah. rain machines set up but it, yeah it was interesting too if you ever read like the the background like like that ending almost didn't happen yeah they wanted him they they made him rewrite it mm-hmm. uh because they thought it was too dark and then it was andrew kevin walker company, was the writer yeah 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 and then that company went out of was had some financial trouble they sold it to another place and then um you know and then there was a mistake in the um i think the the script ended up getting they sent, sent the, the wrong version sent, to venture sent the wrong yeah. version but, you know, Fincher was like, this is the version we're doing. Yeah. And then, you know, and I, I think Brad Pitt, too, was like, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, this is for sure the one that we're doing. Well, I remember um, seeing, I remember, cause I remember, I think I'd seen Brad Pitt in Legends of the Fall, which I was not impressed. I mean, it just, it's probably a good movie now. I could probably watch it and appreciate it. But I think just being a 15 or 16 year old boy, just being like, yeah. girl movie or whatever, you know. <laughs> I was just, you know, sort of dumb teenage kid at the time. And then I think even Interview with the Vampire, I remember liking the movie, but not particularly being impressed with him in it. Yeah. Um, so I had no interest in him. And then I saw Seven and Twelve Monkeys almost back to back. And he became one of my favorite actors almost overnight, it seemed like. Because then, of course, you get Fight Club a couple yeah, years later. Yeah, Fight Club, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and he he's really. I mean, everyone talks about Kevin Spacey in that film, but Brad Pitt's actually, and he's almost like you know we talk about all the flaws we're talking about with the Ray character in The Art of Dying. Like, there's something about Mills in Seven that he's almost like a younger version of that kind of brash cop who's just like a little bit too impatient, a little bit too you know. Yeah, a little bit. He thinks he knows a little bit more than he does. I think he's yeah. not, maybe not quite as smart as Ray. <laughs> right. But, a little bit brash as well. And just yeah. like he's going to charge in there and go after after them. He's got the wife who, like, if he's not careful, he could really screw this up. You know? Yep, yep. Um, and then, yeah, that ending. There's just never been an ending like that. No. And there's all the movies that tried to, you know, there was, I'm thinking of other movies from that time period that, tried to kind of capitalize on that success of seven you know i remember the movie copycat and uh, you know they're not bad movies necessarily but just nothing quite captured the magic of seven it's just 
yeah that that film for me was just like it, it was just done so perfectly well um mm. just love it yeah it's it's probably i mean fincher is probably my favorite living director still and uh and i love i've loved what you know he he will occasionally return to the serial killer and every time he does it it's different you know he did seven and then he came back and he did zodiac which is such a different way of exploring a serial killer story and then he comes back later with mind hunter which is again a totally different ex- mm-hmm. way into it it's it's uh really interesting um yeah definitely all right. Well, it's been had you almost on here for almost two hours, so I'll let I you know. go. Right. This has been great talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thanks for coming on. I'd love to have you come on again uh, sometime in the future. I'll definitely be looking forward to the next book. Uh, remind me, it's called uh, The Burial Ground? The, the Burying Point. The Burying Point. Yep. Um, and that should be coming out soon. So um, I'll probably, whenever that is available for pre-order, I'll try and uh, post a link to that awesome. on social media just to remind people to be looking for that. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Well, that has been another episode of Horror from the High Desert. Thank you very much, Derek, for coming on. Don't forget to check out Nighttime Logic with Daniel Brom. That next episode is going to be on January 16th with Brian Evanson. And be sure to go ahead and stick with me. I've got some really cool stuff uh, planned for the next month. I've got my friend Mandy Connor coming back on. I've got the director, Tom Eberhardt, coming on. He's going to be talking about his career, including the classic 1980s horror comedy, Night of the Comet. And I've got author Gwendolyn Keist coming on. She's going to be talking about her upcoming novel, The Haunting of Velkwood. So like I said at the top, be sure to tell your friends, spread the word, post on social media, go to whatever streaming platform you're using, leave five stars, leave a review, and I'll be back with you guys again in a couple of weeks. 